Hello and welcome to another episode of the Identities Podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. I have a feeling I'm going to say that about every single guest, so that's you're just as special to me. Um, I have Patrick Grant here. He's a musician for the bands Rogue Tenant and Skydome Hotel. He's a writer and he's an all-around music guy. He works for Do Right Music and June Records in Toronto, and he is a very, very dear friend of mine. So uh, thanks, thanks so much for coming around and doing the show with me. Well, thank you very much for having me, Clayton. <laughs> oh man, I, I just found out um, because I'm not you that Bruce Springsteen was in town yesterday. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. And I, the reason why I say that is, sorry, I didn't actually do you justice in the intro. <laughs> You're also uh, three years running Canada's number one Bruce Springsteen fan under the age of 40. That's an official award that you've won. Um, and so, and so when I... It's a depressing ceremony. When I, when I saw that he was here yesterday, literally sometime last week, I just automatically assumed that you were going. Um, and you were not. Yeah, I've had my award stripped. Yeah, well, that's that's unfortunate, but there's a there's a bunch of uh, up and coming Bruce Springsteen fans whose fathers have given them some vinyls, um, and they deserve it. So I'm proud of you for graciously taking your tiara and handing it down in the. No, they actually took my jean vest. It's not a tiara. It's not a tiara. Not, it's a, not for Bruce. That's it's a true. jean vest. They don't know about the early '90s Bruce medallions though, because they're posers. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I don't either, and I'm that, well, yeah. proud of it. Uh, so origi- originally, I was going to ask you um, how it felt like you were 16 all over again, um, going to a Bruce Springsteen concert. The, not necessarily, I mean, obviously this is going to devolve into, what was it like seeing Bruce Springsteen? But like, how it makes you feel because really when I think of Bruce Springsteen I think of you and I was going to say like what does it does it ever does it ever get any less romantic to you but you weren't there so do you think that it did anything to you in terms of who you are um by not being there do you feel like you missed out on something more than literally missing out on his performance oh yeah absolutely um I find that, well, first of all, yesterday, for the duration of the entire show, I was receiving text messages from friends and family, and actually, like, like a dude who was, like, a really good high school friend of mine who I haven't seen in years, who I didn't even have his number in my phone, I got, like, yo, <laughs> this is Chris, are you checking out this boss shit right now? And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, the answer was no, I wish. Uh, anyway, the reason that I didn't go was, uh, well, there were a few different reasons, but, you know, sold out. And I made it. I made it like up to myself last week, being like, "It's not a big deal. I've seen I've seen him a lot of times, and uh, and I don't and I don't need to go to this." And uh, you know, uh, what's the most interesting about being at a Springsteen concert is that it's a very transformative. Like it feels like a transformative moment because there's a lot of people uh, going through the same thing as you, who are from a lot of different walks of life and who want different different things. Uh, but he's able to transfix various different audience members with, uh, you know, uh, with like classic, classic tunes, but also things that are that, are, that he would normally play. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen him play totally acoustic and I've seen him play with the different iterations of the E Street Band in different scenarios. Um, and it always feels like a bit of a like, I mean, a bit of a religious experience. Right. Um, just because, you know, it's the idea of the messianic rock star and stuff. But. I mean, with David Bowie just dying, I think that I've also kind of been thinking about what that means a little bit more in the context of, like, yeah. really big deal rock stars. Yeah, right? I mean, Bruce so. is one of those people. And so the reason why I was going to ask about this on in this particular platform on the podcast is 
fortunately or unfortunately, that's actually another question, depending on how you look at it, Bruce is one of those guys that is messianic, like you said, to you and to probably most of his fan base. I mean, I'll give everybody the benefit of the doubt and say that most of the people going to see a Springsteen show are going because he is so transcendent of generation. He is one of those big guys. And they they believe, like you believe, that it's a, it's a very important part of their musical upbringing, their musical history, and their, and their association with that artist. However, he is also one of those sports team artists in mm-hmm. the sense that, like, not only literally would he be playing the same venue that a sports team plays, but you you can be a guy who doesn't necessarily love music or love love music, and I say that with, like, scare quotes over top of it, and be like, oh, yeah, the Springsteen show, I was there. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the way a lot of people have been treating it on social media today, and, you know... Um, in general, I mean, Bruce is also, I've, I've had a conflicted relationship growing up with him and also being just like, like, you know, like a serious music fan. I feel like that's like a, like a, a bit of a snobby thing to say, but I've yeah, devoted, no, I I've devoted yeah. the majority of my life to music and the consumption and creation of music. Um, and, uh, and Bruce is still my favorite, mm-hmm. but you often meet people who, uh, don't engage with the material on that level at all. And I also like, like kind of like squirm at myself for even referring to it in that way because it is something that's a lot more visceral than that in and of itself and if you want to get into like him as a man or him as an icon or him as a lyricist or as a musician you can break it down in all of those levels but when it really comes down to it the things that appeal about the boss to people are are really on a visceral level and his band being like very massive and in your face and like and uh, and you know his expression being very massive and in your face and and uh, engaging on you know uh, social and political and sexual and like a lot of levels you know um, and yeah. that's and that's why he's such a big deal artist because he engages with a lot of different levels of what it means to consume a song and to create an album and to have a career that lasts as long as it does you know yeah I definitely I I see that completely and yeah like we we don't need to get into a meditation of like who the real fans are with him oh in it doesn't in a matter similar, at all like it totally in a doesn't similar, matter at all in people a similar who love way. glory days and just want to get trashed and drink old milwaukee right. are exactly but, the same but as I mean, me there's, you there's know, definitely the something shit. there's definitely something to say about that type of artist that you can even be that that guy or that band that you can you can basically i, I keep saying transcend but you can basically transcend anybody's opinion whether it be somebody who really considers themselves of music or somebody who considers themselves a fan of music as they as they as they see it in the world, and really you can all be kind of united together. That's why they got to play the big stadiums, right? Because they can't fit all those people in mm-hmm. the garrison because there would just not be enough people who have, who would say, "Oh yeah, I love um, Bruce Springsteen." There's probably about 150 of us. Let's go down and, and watch them. You know, there's there's thousands and, and multiple nights of that of that shit. So in like every city. Yeah, in, like, every, like, in every you know, city. He, he, play, he plays in, in soccer stadiums in Europe. Yeah. Like, oh. Those are bigger stadiums. Yeah. Like, that's they're, right. they're ridiculous. Don't, and they're don't full I know too. Like, yeah. Um, so that, so that, that brings to me, I mean, it's good that we are able to get this way um, to this part of the conversation, either with you being there or not being there. But as a musician yourself, do you, how do I say this properly? You understand that one of your favorite artists of all time, somebody who's so important to you, there's in no way, shape, or form that when you're playing the ACC, you're not part of the business of art. Mm-hmm. Where where do you see yourself, or where do you see that fine line, if, if you don't necessarily want to put yourself on that spectrum, of 
business and art? Well, for me, like, I mean, I don't think it's even a, a, a conversation that what I would do would ever touch something, somebody, somebody that exists on that massive of a level because right. they're an employer first and foremost. So when somebody puts on a show of that magnitude, they have a responsibility to the people that they employ to put on a particular kind of a show that's going to sell out that stadium and pay their roadies and pay yeah, all right. the people who organize all of that stuff. And, uh, and I mean, if you're talking specifically about Bruce, he, like, you know, yesterday was the kind of show where to go to it, you had to have the Visa card with you. Right, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like, they've, yeah. they've been scalper busting lately. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, and uh, that's 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 a thing that he's actually been really opposed to since the 70s, and there are lots of people who are like that, and they're doing that with more and more shows, which I think are really good. I actually saw an article on The Hard Times today that was a joke about how uh, all the at-the-drive-in shows that are coming up are just going to be attended to <laughs> by uh, by robots from the internet because nobody actually got real tickets and they're all being sold on StubHub. Um but yeah, I think that like music that's a production of that level, there are so many different factors at play. Um, you know, like Lemmy, who recently passed away, if you ever watched the Lemmy doc, uh, they show uh, Lemmy's road crew from the 80s being the exact same guys as he worked with for his entire career because they were like a family. Right. And when you think about like a band like Motorhead existing on that level, let alone the legions, the legions of fans and people who have Lemmy tattoos covering their bodies. <laughs> yeah as well as people who are like his homies that have worked for him and with him for years and years and years. That's a different level of responsibility in the business of art that is like, that I feel like doesn't really get talked about that much. No, you're right. And you know what, in a weird way, obviously I've thought about it before, but that, that almost is, it's almost refreshing for me to hear that, to come from you. Um, obviously I've seen you play, this maybe isn't the best medium to talk about it, but I've seen you play and I, and I know the type of music that you that you make. I've known you for a very long time and I, and I kind of get where you are at least coming from as an artist. But one of the things that I never would have maybe thought that we would be talking about uh, and I never really think of day to day is... Yeah, you're right. That that family and that kind of I was when you were describing it, I was thinking like of like Noah's Ark. Like they know that they're bringing everybody on that boat to survive, mm -hmm. right? And that once you're Springsteen, once you're Lemmy, once you're Bowie, once you're whoever you are, it, the context is almost becomes not irrelevant. That's the wrong word, but like the context almost becomes irrelevant. You are now responsible for more livelihoods and, or at least more working situations than you could have. But yeah, but what that also turns into is an one hundred and thirty-five dollar, two hundred dollar ticket, and you're like, well, that's, mm. that's kind of interesting, right? And I mean, that's like that. Elton John is always really big on that. He's like, if you're going to charge two hundred dollars a ticket, then you're going out there and playing the hits. Because if you don't do that, you're an asshole. Right. Uh, because if you go and play your new album front to back and tell everybody that they should respect you as an artist, but you charge them two hundred dollars to show up to the concert, then you're you're out to lunch. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I always I always kind of respected that about him. But I mean, if you want to like flip it around entirely, like it still applies on a much smaller level. There's like the Joel Plaskett line. I call them like I see them in the clubs and not the coliseums. <laughs> and uh, and uh, if you're throwing a show, like, I mean, I throw shows and I have a bunch of buds who throw shows in mm -hmm. small venues in town. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you always want to throw a good show for yourself and for the people who are there, but also for the people who are working at the bar and the sound guy and the bartenders, because if you throw a crappy show and people don't show up and have a good time, then it's like a waste of somebody's night for coming to work when they could have been doing something else, you know? Yeah. And like, I mean, you know, anybody who plays in a bunch of local bands is and has paid their dues and paid ter played terrible shows knows what it's like to play, you know, the Spinal Tap half empty halls show, yeah. and uh, and not have and, and not have anyone there, right? 
and that's not that's, and that's not good for anyone you know but like treating it as like a social experience and a social responsibility to do your absolute best every single time is 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 real right and i and i think i mean you obviously would know more in terms of bruce but just kind of get off to get off of bruce for a second please um, <laughs> is is so one of the things when you were talking about this that reminded me so i went and saw um and actually the kind of the, the phrase that i stole uh, in describing all of this, the business of art, I've, I've been listening a lot to uh, this business of art by Tegan Nacero, which was produced by Hoxley Workman in the, Hoxley. in the early days. But this actually perfectly segues, which I knew it would, because I we get into these musical conversations all the time, and they always find themselves looping around. But uh, Gwen and I went to a Hoxley show a month ago, or whenever he was here last, and one of the things that I thought he said, and, and it made a lot of sense to me in terms of that concept of business of art, is he thanked us, the crowd, not me, Gwen specifically. Uh, he, he's Glenn, like, thank, thank you for thank you. coming. He thanked the crowd so many goddamn times for coming to the point where it was legitimately comical. I mean, people were laughing. Every time he said it, he mm-hmm. would say, thank you for coming. And I know he meant it to be funny. It wasn't, he doesn't have suddenly, he didn't Well, he's also like king comedian on stage. Right, right. And, and I know, and I know that, and I get it. But one of the things that he said that, it, of course, it's like one of those jokes and it's, it's oh, so funny because it's so true, is he said, like one of the times he thanked us, he said, thank you so much for coming. I know how good TV is these days. And which is which is like kind of like you get it. It's a little bit subversive. Like he's saying, like, obviously you would come to a show to see a musician perform as opposed to sitting on your couch, eating a bag of Doritos, watching television. But that's completely untrue. But that's completely untrue. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly it. Right. So I played in the comedy bar band for a really long time. The hazard pay at the comedy bar. And like, I I still do that sometimes. And like my buds still do that. And that's that's a real thing that exists. Sunday Night Live. At the comedy bar, you should go to you it if you're to listening it. to this and you live in Toronto. It's fantastic. I've been um, to one before. They can be really good. They are really good. Um, what I would say is that when they're scheduling the nights off that they have on Sunday nights, mm-hmm. if it's like the finale of Breaking Bad, there's no show. They just don't do it because right. the people who are in that scene who are interested in watching that kind of a live performance are staying home that night. They're not mm-hmm. going out. And it's like really the the percentage of people who watch those big tv events now are so high that it's like it'll cripple anything else that's going on that night which is why you see bars being like we're live airing this because nobody has cable yeah <laughs> you know? I, like, I i mean and, and that's a tr- that's the truth i mean i guess you could argue that it's always been the truth but it, it is true in sense of the on-demand culture of our visual entertainment whether it be movies or or television shows and we're in the golden age of tv like right. this is like the best course, tv that's ever been course. made I mean, outside of match and like you know? and like, well, of course <laughs> um so that that ability to to just say we can watch ten episodes of Breaking Bad tonight if we want if we're catching up or we can just check out whatever's on Netflix or we can we can we can just torrent something and get whatever we want at any given time. Well, even to the point that they're rebooting the X Files and they're rebooting yeah. Twin Peaks. Like, how are they rebooting Twin Peaks? Like, what a ridiculous show in the first place. That's absolutely fantastic. But even the second season of Twin Peaks is twenty two episodes long for no reason. And Lynch kind of isn't involved yeah. in anything. And now they're just like, yeah, why not? Dave yeah. Lynch as an old man is like, I'm absolutely happy to just make this again and potentially ruin it, despite the fact that it's something that people love so much just because the opportunity is there to get paid. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. Like, maybe it's an artistic opportunity, too, but it, it seems really um, strange. It almost it almost makes me wonder um, about, because, I mean, maybe not with Twin Peaks as much because I'm not as familiar with, with 
Twin Peaks myself. But just that, it doesn't matter. The concept of that and just knowing, and maybe that's why people do sequels as well, is like just knowing that you know as an artist that you've done something that connected to someone, that if they make you if they make you or let you not make you or maybe make you depending on the relationship you have with whoever's releasing (laughs) your content um if they let you do it again um it will fulfill you in ways that maybe even a new project wouldn't and i I have a general concept because of whatever i'm being fed by the artists themselves or by people that i talk to or maybe just romanticism of artists that artists are always trying to look to progress they're never Especially when they have the old big hits. I mean, you just think about Kanye West, for example. He's always saying publicly and in his music, like on Twitter or whatever in interviews, or and in his music, like, I am different now than I was before. I'm moving forward. This is this is better. I mean, everybody says it's better. This is different. This is a change. This is progressive. Yada, yada, yada. But that isn't necessarily a truism. So if, if you're looking at somebody saying you can remake the X-Files if you'd like, or you can remake Twin Peaks if you'd like, Perhaps or Zoolander or any or Anchorman or any yeah, of those or comedies, anything you know? where it's like perhaps when when a studio or somebody with a d- distributing power says to you as an artist, you can do this again. It's not just about that paycheck. It's about that kind of identity that they find saying, I know that this art that I did that meant a lot to me when I did it first is still something that people love. And I need to express myself again via that medium that I or, or that or that concept that I originally touched people with and well I, mean, I don't know is that, I less, mean, is that less artistic you know what I mean like is that totally I mean I, you think I so yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. like I mean there's obviously it's different for everyone but I mean for me like something something like the like the comedies I just mentioned are indicative of people being older and having no vision right and just being like yeah. cool you're gonna pay me to do this again I'm mm-hmm. totally gonna do mm-hmm. it again yeah somebody which is like, how I generally see it somebody like Kanye West that currently has more vision than substance and like you know like like <laughs> like yo like honestly like I love Kanye and I've always been a Kanye apologist his worst tracks I still love like yeah. it's whatever like I actually just think he's very interesting and I think he's a great artist yeah despite the fact that he basically is a knob twister and pays people to do stuff yeah. but I mean David Bowie was a lot in that way too where he would just like hire a totally different band and then collaborate with them and then change, change their ideas into what became his albums mm-hmm. you know yeah. and that's very cool you know it, regardless of the fact that Kanye is an asshole um, it, perhaps David Bowie is too or was but don't speak ill of the dead uh, and I love did. Bowie whatever I don't know well, okay. he's, he's listening now it's recorded yeah, he's I, cried when he's he, I cried when he died and drank a bottle of vermouth um, a whole bottle uh, a half oh, okay yeah Fine. Gross. Anyway, uh, the the point the point you, is, is that I don't want to say that I just don't want to say that it's less artistic, but like right. if you look at somebody like a, you know like a Lupe Fiasco or something like there, it's just like you know he made a very amazing first album and then kind of like went and skewed it and then made Food and Liquor yeah. Two, but he didn't need to make a Food and Liquor Two. He was just going back to like right. find right, what right, it was right, that people right, liked right. and remind them that right. they liked him. The, yeah, or maybe like guy. Most Def's a good example. You know, like Most Def right now just retired from music. Yeah, and. Um, is apparently releasing his last album this year. Has it been recorded? We have no idea. Yeah. These kinds of things. But like my favorite most deaf, maybe not my favorite because obviously he made such great albums, but like like True Magic was a most deaf record. Yeah. Do you remember that record? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like 2006 or mm-hmm, seven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like that was like a really honest, like like very high, but very political and strange most deaf album. And it was like, I feel like it came from a place of honesty because it was like totally rushed and strange. But it was like a progression, you know? It was like, he was like, yeah. it's like, here is here is this next weird thing that I don't care if my fans will like, 
and I don't care about anything other than me moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be commercially bad. And I'm going to release it with just a CD in a blank case. And then Kanye West is going to do that 10 years later, yeah. and everyone's going to say, hey, this is raw and wow. interesting. Yeah, and it's just like, well, yeah. it, but, it, it, you know, I, I don't know exactly where I'm getting with this. It's just that it's different for every individual. And, uh, yeah. and, whether, and whether it's more artistic or less artistic, I think, is defined by their body of work. And I think is defined by, like, their motivations in the situation. But when you're talking about people who are this famous, they're getting paid to do everything. So when you're looking at the yeah. contracts, it's totally different, right? Yeah. It's like it's not like somebody just deciding out of out of the back of their mind to like embark on a new frontier. It's like what is somebody going to pay me the most to do and what do I actually feel like doing? So, okay, so then this is this is kind of a good segue to kind of go into you then since this is is ostensibly about you and disclaimer Please, i probably shouldn't i probably shouldn't i probably should put a disclaimer in what could be the middle of the episode but i am very aware that this kind of just us talking about what music might or might not mean is how this was going to go but this really is supposed to be <laughs> about 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 pat and not necessarily about about uh most deaf well if we're but, talking about identity politics then, no, you know i think about most deaf as much well, as well I, I mean myself. i mean there's a whole other identity politics around him obviously changing his name uh, around the debt that kanye owes him he, i mean how did he announce that he was retiring from music he let Kanye do your Kanye let him do a freestyle that was hosted on his website mm -hmm. uh, you know like uh, I was a ripoff not a ripoff a cover basically of his of the song that Kanye had released a week earlier I mean where does that go in your artistic journey that you say I know that most people don't think that most deaf is popping anymore but I don't care I'm putting him on my website as the only thing that you can click on on my website because I respect him because Kanye so keeps it real <laughs> right 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 okay so then this is perfect then let's let's use keep it real as a segue yeah what when keeping it real goes wrong what does <laughs> what does being in a band do for you then what what does making i shouldn't say being in a band what does making music do for you oh. at the end of the day well i mean or at making, the beginning of the day yeah i mean the question of making music or being in a band are totally different things but um making music for me is what it does for me well it's uh it's the only thing that i don't know how to not do uh i've spent a long time uh finding it and mm -hmm. it, I do a lot of different things and uh, I don't always totally know what I'm doing I feel like I, I feel like I don't necessarily have the clearest artistic direction out of a, out of a lot of people that I know mm -hmm. um, but it's the thing that I found in my life that uh, made me feel the most like myself and that I wouldn't ever stop doing and I know that I'm never gonna stop doing it um, and I keep finding different avenues mm -hmm. And I feel the most satisfied that I've ever felt by it now. Uh, now that I, you know, like I have a project that is that is my own, even though I work on it with other people, which is Rogue Tenant. Mm -hmm. And then I have Skydome Hotel, which is an instrumental band uh, that I, you know, collaborate with people. And I feel like I'm going to be making music with those guys for a really long time. Uh, even if we don't make another record for five years, I know that it, will, it, it, it's, it was the first... Uh, thing where it felt completely organic and mm -hmm. based in a lot of work and uh and like i didn't need to push anything to happen it just happened uh and then i play in a band called twist uh that is way more of like being in a band mm -hmm. and figuring out what it means to be in a band and everybody plays a completely different role and uh and uh is just figuring out how how we can make things happen in the way that they need to happen even though that's actually not my project and i actually am not as creatively involved in that 
So right. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's a different thing. So. I mean, you've you've actually kind of touched and answered uh, quite a few of the, the kind of caveats of the questions that I was going to ask you. But I guess it's a two part question because it, it is two separate questions. Uh, when you're when you're writing music, mm-hmm. um, and I guess I guess I mean lyrics. I'm I'm kind of just feeling this out as I as I uh, go along here. Do you think that it's that you think that songwriting is a form of of acting or a form of identity reflection is everything that you put in there. I, this is a dangerous question, so I apologize. But like, is everything that you put in there definitely the most you that that you can be, or is it the coolest shit that you could think of in the moment to make it be good music, or in your in your opinion, um, good music? I mean, definitely, I would say neither. Like, I feel like that's cool. like a pretty, yeah. like I feel no, like no, that's no, a pretty hard yeah. binary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I know. You know, uh, there's a, uh, I forget where I read this. I'm sure that it was just some like, like pitchfork article or something. Uh, but there was, there was an article about Nutramilk Hotel Mm -hmm. talking about, uh, talking about Jeff Mangum as a songwriter and about how, uh, it was a real, like the album that blew them up in the airplane was like a really, really personal album and it made him freak out because, you know, when, when they went on the road people were singing along with like his deepest darkest thoughts and it like meant a lot to yeah. a lot of people yeah and he right. uh, inadvertently broadcasted something that was very <laughs> personal and then turned it into personal for everyone yeah which i think is you know like like not that they're necessarily emo music but like in terms of that era of music there's a lot of music where it is straight up like here's my journal mm-hmm. that's the song mm-hmm. yeah um but when you look at somebody like uh like a Joni Mitchell or a Neil Young uh, they're the kind of people where there's like a they, they treat themselves as a little bit of a vessel, but there's a lot of their experiences and things. Mm-hmm. But there's no clear cut like this song is about this person or this song is about like this part of my life. And that might speak to the way that people were writing about their music at the time. Um, but for me, anyway, uh, I spend a long time writing my songs. Yeah. So it takes me a long time to like fully realize what a song can be. So even if it is written in the heat of like a, you know, sort of like an emotional moment or something, mm-hmm. or it's something that I slaved over for a long time because I thought the words sounded cool, because yeah. I'm like usually a words first person, uh, it always transforms and means different things to me over time to the point that it doesn't recognize, like I don't recognize the self in it that wrote it usually. Yeah. yeah. So okay. So that actually that actually was trying to give you of, more identity things. No, 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 no. Because that's that's something that I was going to ask you outside of music, but it makes now sense as we're talking to kind of go into it. Um, do you feel, especially because in a way you are documenting things with with songs, that you are more yourself now whether it be through your art or outside of your art than you were before do you think that you've do you think that you've lost some things in time that maybe your art has been able to to pick up those pieces or do you not even have an opinion on it do you think that it's it's it really has kind of carried through with you well i for things like this i actually wonder about people who are photographers mm-hmm. because your art necessarily captures your life right in a very literal way and there's like the whole idea that like if you look at a photograph too much, the photograph replaces the memory, and you just remember the photograph. Right. And that's a big problem with like, you know, the way that we interact with each other, you know, digitally, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, 
for me at least like yeah i definitely have songs where i remember like writing the song a very very long time ago and uh and it represents a feeling or it represents a person and sometimes i'll like forget for a while that it represents that person and then i'll play it again right. and think of that person and be like oh okay yeah this was this was a thing i mean um, that's that's something that i always feel uh listening to music is one of the things i a while ago i it just actually crossed my mind and so it's interesting that you say this obviously it's a little bit more profound when you say it because you're actually talking about making music but like i wrote something a while ago on like a facebook note to kind of keep a journal of my memories about kind of the music library in our minds and the and the definition of kind of what these songs mean to a person at a specific time and how maybe because time passes or because the songs aren't as good as you maybe once thought they were you um you lose what their original meanings were but then one time it can just be one time and maybe it's just randomly the song occurs like you're not even you're not playing it yourself it comes on in a bar or somebody else you know is like oh have you heard this is cool and you and you're brought back to what that song meant to you Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and that's and that's such a cool thing for me um i i was actually recently reading um an article about from this writer called rebecca leclerc her name is rebecca leclerc and she wrote about how teenagers how it's it's been clinically proven in in some studies i don't want to say that it's the i'm kind of pulling this from memory i don't want to say it's the most important identity forming thing but it definitely is an identity forming medium in which the music that they listen to helps them become who they are because often because of the way and this is why i'm so interested to talk to you because of the way artists express themselves the only way they know how through lyrics and through music they and you were kind of talking about this with neutral milk hotel they say the words that these kids are thinking or at least they think that they're thinking right and so then that becomes so important to the 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 concept of their identity that it doesn't matter it's jimmy world it's brand new it's death cab for cutie i'm just throwing that out from my fellow millennials uh they (laughs) they they are are like i actually don't believe that that's the fully a true millennial class but whatever let's not talk about that they that they believe that those words are theirs and that they are there for them and they make them who they are but you grow up i mean the period you grow up that's the end of the story and even though those things can mean just as much to you, they don't necessarily define your identity the way... She doesn't actually say this in the article, but they don't they don't actually necessarily define you the way that you think they did when you were growing up. And so I find that so interesting when you're not just somebody who's consuming music, like you're saying, you're somebody who's making music, and yet that same feeling can come through where you're like, da-da-da-da-da-da, like I'm singing and I'm playing the chords. That's how your songs go. And, yep, and, totally. uh, and, then, and then you go, and then you go, oh, that was about this experience. That was about this person. It's, it's a, it's an, uh, hold on, I'm going to say something incredibly profound. It's like an audio photograph. You know what I mean? Like it captures that moment of, of, um, of time in a way that you might not even remember until you look at it or play it again. Sure, but okay. I guess the way that I'm going to take this conversation, though, is that we're, we are the same age, right? Yeah, we're the same age. Yeah, we're the same age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we grew up, like, at the moment when you're consuming all of those things, and it's like the artist is saying the thing to you, if that is if that is indeed the way that things are defined and stuff. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that in the way that, like, parents teach babies how to speak and how to feel and, like, learn how to in, 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 incorporate the surroundings. That totally happens to teenagers with how to, you know, engage with art and how to... and how to define who they are in terms of their identity and the way they yeah. think of themselves. If you're going to shroud yourself in art the way that people like like us kind of do. Yeah. Um, uh, we grew up in a terrible time for music. 
like, like basically the worst time ever in the history of like basically like commercialism peaking out at its worst point and we get things yeah. that, that we yeah, now yeah, have yeah. nostalgic feelings yeah, for yeah, yeah. Oh that, my God. That, that will never give you anything other than trying to interpret why they meant anything yeah, to you. I mean, you give me Roland by Limp Bizkit any day of the week and I'm, I'm feeling it. Yeah, so but I'm, also, yeah, but at the same time though, like, <laughs> woof. Yeah. You know, like if in, in, in the overall body of like recorded music and like what could have happened, like yeah. really, like it was a peak that had to happen because it was like, it was, I feel like almost like like downloading like rescued us from that yeah. in a way. You oh, know? it it's totally like, did. Holy shit! It's like it was actually just like peak commercialism. Yeah, that was giving people like really, really, yeah. really, really, really bad art, mm-hmm. and uh, and also respond like I mean you know a large portion of the population responded by making more interesting art and completely rejecting those things, and uh, and uh, I hope that I'm engaging better with those things now in my life because I'm trying to find uh better and more interesting art scenes to be a part of and to see mm-hmm. uh and there are definitely a lot of people that i know who are just like a little bit older or a little bit younger who skipped that but we all hit it man yeah we all oh, bought yeah. a limp biscuit cd yeah yeah we, yeah. we all oh, we all are in that was, Park. yeah i mean and that's the thing i mean not to not to turn this into my other podcast media, media theory 101 uh but it's very McC- mcluhan-esque in the sense that the medium was the message in the sense that and maybe it's not necessarily the medium, but but there wasn't the option to, to download. And so the record companies, the people who were running them, they weren't stupid. They knew that the only way that you could get your, your music, for example, I mean, we'll just stick to music, was to buy the shit that they were putting out. And so that allowed the art to get lazy or, or just not as good. And it allowed a, a consumer class, legitimately a consumer class that course still exists but like to say yes please get, like what what else am i supposed to do give yes, me give, give me more things yeah. with a parental advisory yeah, give, give me, me a yeah. baggy t-shirt and purple hair yeah and like be give me off. give me it all because I, i'm pissed off because everyone's pissed yeah, off exactly. at that so age. i want so yeah so just you, i all i know is that the way to, to deal with this the way to, to express myself and to and to feel like i belong is to purchase all of this stuff once that kind of purchasing barrier was broken uh, is that's when it kind of normalized itself a little bit more mm-hmm. you know it went okay well actually you don't necessarily need to buy this it's still there for you to buy if you'd like but you don't need to you can explore yourself through legal or illegal ways means and find out what you what you really are into and that that was good for the people that had that option and i don't necessarily think at the at the starting gate of our particular generation we had that but it is what it is. It, it still it still influences us in a way that that is unique to everyone else. Whether it be maybe the the idealized golden age to do it is is, is subjective, but it's there, and I and I definitely agree with you. But we're also starting to have like a weird thing where um, there's like ironic nostalgia tours kind of happening. Yeah. you oh. know where I it hasn't it hasn't full on full on happened. Uh, where, you know, like, people are going to go see, you know, Limp Biscuit at the Molson Amphitheater or something like that, but I feel like that will happen a little bit more oh, yeah. older. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. now you see, like, yeah. you know, with, like if, if you, you know, shell out the money to go see, like, a Robert Plant or a Rolling Stones because this is the last time in our lives we can see them, that's a different reaction than, like, people who actually grew up on that music mm-hmm. getting to see bands that they didn't get to see back in the day but that they loved their music and yeah. loved them in a way that was legitimate because maybe the songs were about a little bit more. Uh, not that the Stones songs are really about anything other than, uh, you know, cocaine and, and and sex and whatever. Yeah. Like, is it really that different? Um, but 
I don't know. What's that line from Airheads? Like, you tell me what Purple Haze means, and I'll tell you what the, I think of the golden generation of quote-unquote real music. That's yeah. not the line at all, by the way, but it, it, it does reference Purple Haze, and I think it was Brendan Fraser. So Yeah, so we're good. They were fine. It's, they were fine. It's a pretty good paraphrase. He was better in Encino, man. Um, so this is completely off topic. We're going to take a quick break, although I am going to still record it because I've always wanted to do this. My man Pat's got to open a beer, and it sounds really good in front of a recorder, so we're going to do that right now, and it's going to sound amazing. Do you hear that? It's like this the- could be you, beer sponsor. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what he's drinking. You need to listen in suspense, but he's drinking a cold one right now. It's been sitting on the floor for a while, so it's not that cold. It actually but, is pretty cold. No, it's still cold. It's a cold one right now, mm-hmm. and this could be your product if you'd like, and we would mention it on air. <laughs> Uh, so you get in touch at identitiespodcast at gmail.com and I will uh, I'll listen to that poor you can't even hear the poor he's not doing it close enough he's not really helping me with my sponsorship scheme here it sounds like one of those fridge magnets where you press the button and it goes I feel like we should have a solid listen to everything we just rambled about no it's good yeah Yeah, it's it's very good I mean I I, I like it okay Uh, yeah who knows this is the question that I've been wanting to ask you uh, since we started, but I kind of admittedly led us along a, a Springsteen path when we started. But I want you to tell me yourself, because I'm, I'm so interested in this. Is there a piece of art? It doesn't even have to be music. I, we've talked a lot about music today, but mm-hmm. if it is, it's fine. Is there a piece of art that you hold so dear to your heart that it's become a part of your identity? And, and what is it? Not just yes, but <laughs> what is it? If so... <laughs> Yes. Crickets. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, it's an album for, by the band. Thanks yes. for coming on. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> I want to. I want to pick something that isn't a record because we've just been talking about music mm-hmm. this entire yeah, time. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And totally, yeah. I have so many records where they're ingrained in my identity, and I don't know who I would have been without them. But it's like mm-hmm. there's just. I'm I'm really prone to saying this is like my favorite thing of all time when describing it to someone. Because right. Cool. Because I, I have been selling records to people for a living for like ten years. <laughs> it's like I that love point. this record. And yeah. if I was going to talk about a yes record, it would be close to the edge. Ah, there you go. Uh, but it's not close to the edge. Uh, that's not the answer. Um, I'm gonna say, hmm. No, we were talking about TV before. I'm gonna talk about Mash. Okay. Uh, so when I was a kid, I used to watch MASH, uh, the same episodes, uh, repeating, uh, twice. They basically would show two episodes when I got home from school. And then in order to stay up late when I was a kid, uh, I would watch the same two epi- episodes again with my mom. Cause initially when I came home, she wasn't actually home. Uh, and so I would watch them and pretend like I hadn't already watched them that day. Mm-hmm. And in order to stay up later, watch the episodes of MASH that ah. were being shown on Prime to stay up. But then I would also rewatch the episodes. So as a result, I have a pretty like uh, crazy amount of memory of MASH. I've mm-hmm. seen the entire series more than once, which is like a lot of seasons. It's like 11 seasons of a, of a television program. So that's a pretty big one. Uh, I've internalized a lot of Alan Alda quips. Yeah. You know, uh, thing, thing, things like that. I mean, I wish I kind of had something more profound. No, to reference. well, it's funny that uh, so here I'll. I mean, I don't know if I'm if I'm if I'm helping, but one of the things that I always found funny is I don't. So I don't have the the same relationship with Mash that, that you do. Sure, um, but like, who does? But, Who's like well, right, the age well, which, of like whatever. But that's what like, I'm talking about. Like that's you. Although I definitely know that it was on Prime, and Prime was awesome. Later, TV Tropolis. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That was that's when the Can West Empire fell. Um, shout outs to my media theory people. So. One of the interesting things, uh, there's a character, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a character, Hot Lips. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hot Lips Houlihan. Okay, so my, my, my mom's last name. Well, her name's Margaret. My mom's <laughs> maiden name was Houlihan. And so growing up, 
everybody used to joke with her hot lips with a because it's the match reference ha 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 very funny um and so because of that i was very hyper aware of mash now i never actually watched mash mm-hmm. but i know that alan alda was on the show and again correct me if i'm wrong he was a good guy Sure, but he's a conflicted guy. The best thing about the show is that it's like it's 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 dark and light at the same time. Like it goes from being like a like a Marx Brothers indebted slapstick right. comedy to like he's he's like you know doing intense surgery on people like in the next second. You know, right, he's a doctor. Right? Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, 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 yeah. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Nash's right. Mobile Army yeah. Surgical mm-hmm. Hospital. They're basically like they're like close to mm-hmm. the front uh, in the Korean War, and it's like a very political show, and they deal with a lot of uh, a lot of issues of. Uh, you know, uh, of race and yeah. uh, and uh, and sexuality and a lot of different things, uh, and and definitely like you know uh, the way that America was was coping with its kids getting murdered. You know, like yeah. it, it was a lot of different things. It's... But also at its heart, it was a comedy and it was a dark comedy and it was really really popular. And I feel like it's informed a lot of um, I don't know, just a lot of my disposition towards things and a lot of there it it being okay for there to be a duality in art where things can be both hilarious and sad at the same time. I mean, Peanuts is a lot like that too. There are a yeah. lot of things that are yeah, very yeah, popular yeah. franchises that are built around things being 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 dissatisfying and very satisfying, and you kind of can't find the the space between the two. Um, and that's what I love about that show. Also, Corporal Klinger, you know, there's a, like an there's a there's a there's a Lebanese cross-dressing corporal that's on that show for the pretty much entire time that it's on. And it was kind of treated as a funny joke, and then later kind of just treated as something that was totally accepted and fine. Yeah. And I, uh, I love that. What I was going to say was, so th- as far as I know about MASH, and it, in fact, some of the topics that you brought up, I went to school for radio and television arts, and they brought up MASH with a lot of what you just said about that kind of duality, about kind of the reflection of the war, and, and, and kind of the, the ability to be that kind of dark comedy. But what I never actually got fully was, you know, character profiles. So Alan Alda... Um, in my opinion, in terms of his character on the show, was basically a pretty good guy without that kind of duality, kind of fun, loving, happy. And then I recently saw him on a show called uh, The Blacklist, and he's like just a straight up bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that that was so funny every time he showed up on the screen. He's like a guest star, so he wasn't on it all the time, but he would show up almost literally like um, Inspector Gadget, like the guy that strokes the cat. <laughs> like he legitimately was like a cat stroking bad guy. So comical that I, I always thought, what, why did Dr. They... Claw? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I was like, why I was going to say they... Dr. Hook, but that's a different thing. I mean, hooks and claws, they'll scratch you. Uh, <laughs> they, I always thought, why do you put Alan Alda as this character? Like, wh- what do you get out of Alan Alda being that guy? Because he's he's the guy from MASH. Like, he's you, you're well, happy go well, He's a pretty well-rounded actor. Right, no, and I, I'm sure that he is. He goes is. down in a barrage of uh, gunfire and murder at 1600. In t- I... <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> no, but okay. My point, to, to get back to, because I apologize, to get back to the sense of identity, what I'm saying is, in terms of Alan Alda, who is the crux of every identity crisis, is I assumed by seeing him as such a bad guy that that was specifically done for the audience of this show starring James Spader that that was a wink 
to be like, you know him as the fun-loving character from MASH. Can you believe we made him into such a caricature of the quote-unquote bad guy in this show where he literally only shows up to be like the bearer of bad news? So it's funny that I thought that, but yet you now talking to me, me preparing a question for you about Alan Alda by listening to what you know about Alan Alda mm -hmm. are actually telling me, well, yeah, let's not let's not call him... You know, let's not call them. Uh, well, I also just Andy don't think Griffith show just quite. Well, yeah. just what I'm gonna get at there is that like they don't make him into anything. Alan Alda, I feel like as an actor, probably at this point doesn't do anything that he doesn't want to do. So he right. probably just read the character and just yeah, did true. it because he liked to, you know. Yeah. But because really, like that guy made probably more money in television at that time than probably anyone. Um, I, I can't think of like a show that was more successful than Mash up until the point that it ended. And apparently the last episode of MASH, which is actually a crazy dark psychiatric episode, there's a character called Dr. Sidney Friedman, which is obviously just like Sigmund Freud, uh, and, <laughs> and he, who is, who's the therapist who there's shows up wink. every so often. I was often. looking for a wink, but there we go. Well, you know, yeah, totally. But also, yeah. like, I mean, there are episodes where, uh, where, where Friedman, like, writes episodes to, or uh, writes letters to Freud. Mm -hmm. um, like, there's, a, there's an ongoing motif in MASH where, like, you know, various characters in the show will write letters home to people and describe what's going on in the episode, and there will be vignettes of what happens in the episode. Um, and they do the ones that are Sidney Friedman are always him writing to Sigmund Freud. And in that last episode, uh, Alan Alda's character finally cracks. And I'm sorry if you haven't ever watched the last episode of MASH, but it happened in, in the early 80s, so I'm pretty sure I don't have to say spoiler yeah, sorry, alert but, anymore. Sorry, luck. Um, but yeah, he uh, yeah he he loses his mind. Actually, I'm not even gonna say why he loses his mind, because that will be the spoiler. Yeah, but he loses but he loses his mind and ends up in a mental hospital and like totally like like cracks. And that's like how the series ends. And that was like the most watched episode of television in television history at wow. that time. See, this is you get a lot on the Identities podcast. And, Making bread. And this is. And if we want to tie it back into my identity, I still wear a maroon bathrobe. Uh, which is what Hawkeye Pierce walks around wearing on the on, ah, on, on, on the see? campground all the time. You know, I knew if I squeezed that stone hard enough, I could get some blood right there. Um, okay, so to kind of wrap it up, uh, this is a very loaded question, so I apologize. But what do you think your identity, your your relationship is with the concept of identity? Who who do you think you are, my friend? Well, uh, I used to really care about that question, mm -hmm. and I used to think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, since you referenced what you went to school for, I went to school for English literature and like yeah. focused on like postmodernism and and uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of psychoanalysis and approaches to literature and these kinds of things. And uh, and they were very good at dismantling what it meant to you know what it meant to have an identity and define it through art. Mm -hmm. And I just don't care so much anymore. Uh, I like to I like to experience the things that I experience. And I like to uh, really, really focus on music because it's the only thing that really gives me satisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I don't um, I don't hold myself up to the light as much as maybe I should, you know, these days. Um, but I don't hold myself up to the light uh, in that way anymore. So who I think I am is uh, is somebody who is working very hard towards making good stuff uh, and good art, and I will continue to do that uh, for. The, as long as the the foreseeable future, mm -hmm. you know that's yeah, the plan. Is, I mean, that's all. And uh, and I want to and I want to support. Uh, I want to support good art scenes in this city and in other ones, and uh, and just generally be uh, be good and kind to others. Like that's 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 mainly it, because uh, I feel like there are a lot of people out there that are like me and you, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people out there who are, you know, equally flabbergasted at the concept of uh, what their experiences have turned them into. The first line of uh, 
there's a riot going on. Sly Stone. It feels so good inside myself. I don't want to move. And that's death. You know, like, that's the worst. And I mean, that's what's part of what's so d- dark and funky and soulful about that record. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, God, I'm happy he had to live it and I didn't have to, you know? And it's like, I don't want to feel so good inside myself. I don't want to move. I always want to move. I want to feel good among others and, and, and you know, among uh, among the things that make me feel good, which is music, art. And I think Toronto's a really, really good place to be living in for art right now. I think there's a lot of good songwriters. I think there's a lot of good music. And I think there's a really good mu- community for it. So, uh, you know. Well, thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you so much for having and, me. And doing this. I've I've got to say, Pat will definitely be back if he would like to be, because we could definitely do 11 of these in a row. And, and as long as we had more beer cans to open, we'd be very happy with that. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you so much for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll be back. I, I think I'm going to stick to a two-week schedule. I know I said I had no idea how often I was going to do them, but I think every two weeks we should probably have a new one ready for you. So thank you very much for listening. This has been the Identities Podcast. Um, I will link everything that I possibly can that Pat's talked about tonight um, in the description of the podcast episode. Please subscribe. Please comment. Please rate. Please do everything else that you would do on the WTF with Mark Marin podcast because let's face it, that's what we're all trying to be here. Um, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>